What is a parable? The, the Greek word from which we get the word parable is parabolo. It means to throw alongside. So it's a story that comes alongside something. But what is it coming alongside? Are they just, are they just nice little stories for us? These, are these the stories that we like to put most often on the felt boards in our Sunday school classes? Many of them, yes. But many of them, no. Many of them aren't nice stories at all. The king destroying a city for speaking against him. A manager cheating his master out of money and then praised for it. That's a really weird one. A guy burning in hell and begging for relief. Some of these clearly are not the nice little kid stories that we'd like to put on the felt board. But why did Jesus teach in these kinds of ways? Why did Jesus teach these kinds of stories? We'll get to what they are, but why would he do this in the first place? I think something for us important to understand is that God is a storyteller. Do you know this, that 30% of the Bible is propositional, meaning teaching um, propositional truth, which leaves how much left? 70% of our Bible is told in story form, is a narrative. The very, the very beginning of it basically opens like once upon a time. In the beginning, the story begins. And I think we, created in God's image, long for story in the same way. We ask our children at the dinner table each evening, hey, what'd you do today? We don't mean, hey, tell me some facts about the day. Tell me the things that you learned or how hot you got at recess or something. Tell, just tell me the stories of the day. Tell me what made you happy. Tell me what made you sad. We, we love story. We read books. We watch movies. We listen to music. We love it. And Jesus, being both God and man, is no different. But not only does he tell stories... But he is the story, the word, the, the story of the word made flesh. He is both storyteller and the protagonist of the story that he's telling. He enters into this story. So I think, first of all, Jesus tells these kinds of stories, these parables, because he knows that we long for them. But what are they? Are they just analogies? Are they just sermon illustrations to make a point? Perhaps you may have heard someone call them earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Is that all they are? These moral stories just to teach us a universal lesson? One commentator says this, parables function as a lens that allows us to see the truth and to correct our distorted vision. If I were to take off my glasses, I would not be able to see you all very well. I have poor vision. But by putting on my glasses, my eyes are corrected and I can now see clearly. And parables function in the same way. They're interestingly compelling and think about it this way, sneaky stories. Jesus approaches and understands our preconceived notions about the way things are and then puts on like a black ninja costume and sneaks past those preconceived notions to then expose something to be true of us. He diverts our attention 
on this story to then sneak past our prejudices. Think of David and Nathan. We've, we're in this in first or in Second Samuel just a few months ago uh, when David is in sin. He has committed adultery. He has murdered the uh, a husband. Nathan knows he's in sin, and he could have just said, David, you have abused your kingly power. You have committed adultery. You have murdered. You have coveted and stolen. Repent! But how might David have reacted to this? We've already seen what he'll do to protect himself, to keep his sin going. He likely would have just said, get this guy out of here, off with his head. Who does this man think he is? But did you see what Nathan did, though? He diverts his attention. He diverts David's attention to himself and onto a story where David then enters into the story. Nathan sneaks past his preconceived notions of what right and wrong is. David gets angry at the character that Nathan portrays. You're the man. David connects, and then David then connects the world of the story to real life. He says, I and I alone have sinned against the Lord. So the listener to the parable, to the story, willingly enters into the world of the story. So a parable isn't just a sermon illustration. It's meant to awaken our understanding about what is being taught. It's meant to provoke our own consciences. And then it's meant to, most importantly, move us to action. Parables force us to move into the world of the story, move from the world of the story and back to our world, reflecting on our own character, our own motivations. And then to change in response to it. Like Nathan, Jesus understands that we are people who enter ourselves into stories. So then he can sneak past our tendency to live in empty and impractical doctrine. So when some Pharisees are criticizing Jesus for hanging out with so-called sinners, Jesus tells them a story about two sons. One who is a prodigal. He spends all of his inheritance, but then repents. The other son, being one who thinks because of his position and his works, he is somehow owed more than others. So Jesus sneaks past their idea of who belongs into the kingdom and who doesn't. Or when one guy claims to love his neighbor, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you don't love your neighbor, pal, right? He sneaks past his preconceived notions about what love really is by telling him a story about who, a Samaritan who really loves. So what? So what? I want to give this little introduction here to parables before we get into this one to see what kind of preconceived notions Jesus is sneaking past his original listeners and for us. So we're going to try to do two things tonight. We're going to try to understand the parable and then live the parable. It's one thing to understand what Jesus is getting at. It's another thing to understand it and then have our vision corrected and moved to right thinking and right living. So tonight, uh, Matthew 20, the first 16 verses, what's probably titled in your Bible, the laborers in the vineyard. Hopefully we'll see that's a bit of a mistitle. Let me just read it for us first. 20 verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing, standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. 
So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only an hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first laugh, last. So what's the point? What's going on here? There's been lots of popular interpretations throughout the centuries. In the first century or two, many of the church fathers made an allegorical interpretations, meaning the, the, first, the five hirings of the day were perhaps Adam to Noah, and then Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to Christ, and Christ to the present. Sounds good. Or perhaps, as many of us have probably thought about and interpreted this parable for ourselves, maybe it's like the, the life stages of conversion. Perhaps those hired at the beginning of the day were those who were, uh, came to faith in Christ early in their childhood and by the end of their life think that they're owed more because of their faithfulness to Christ. Those hired at the 11th hour, the last hour of the day, are those who perhaps... Uh, come, to, come to faith in Christ on their deathbed. Perhaps so. The problem is that thematically, this parable could have been easily placed elsewhere in the book of Matthew, if that's what Matthew was intending. Like with parables of the present kingdom or with parables about judgment. What's important for us in any parable is to not just read the parable, but to look at it in its context in which it appears. We're, this is very, very important. Don't ever, ever, ever read a parable without reading what comes before it and what comes after it. Even the ones you think you know really, really well. Don't do it. Uh, by the way, we might be tempted to pay more attention to the actual parable than what comes before and after it because many of our Bibles put the actual parable in red letters, and then there's some black letters parts that come before it and some black letter parts that come after it. And so we think, ooh, this one, okay, the black part's over now. Now we're to the red part. This is the really good stuff. This is the important part that we should pay attention to. The problem is the words of Jesus are not, they don't come to us apart from how Matthew or Luke or Mark or John present us to us. The only way we have access to the words of Jesus is through these Spirit-inspired men. So all of God's scripture, all of scripture is breathed out by God and is just as much the word of God as the others, the black letters and the red letters. So rant over. Uh, what is our context? What comes before these 16 verses? What comes after? Uh, 
We see in chapter 19 and verses 16 through 22, uh, the story of the rich young ruler, where Jesus confronts him. He says that your treasure on earth is not what saves you. He says, sell everything, treasure me above all else, and then you'll have real treasure in heaven. So immediately following this, Peter and the disciples are like, jackpot. Guess what, Jesus? You just confronted that guy because he wouldn't sell everything. He hasn't left everything to follow you. But we did. So what do we get? This is exactly what happens at the end of chapter 19. What do we get? What treasure are you talking about? And Jesus, correcting him, but perhaps not as strongly as we would think, says, actually, you know what, Peter? Those who follow me, your treasure will actually be immense, hundredfold more than you could even imagine. Verse 29 of chapter 19. But, Peter, the first will be last. Reward doesn't come like you think. And then Peter's like, what? (laughs) What do you mean? Uh, And then Jesus is like, you know what? Let me tell you a story. Let me enter you into a world that you're not imagining here. And so he does. And he tells them this story of the laborers in the vineyard. So what's the point of this story? If you read this story in the newspaper, what would your reaction be? Like if you got the journal and you open it up and you read about, I don't know, like Los Poblanos or something, some, some farm um, who had done this. They hired a bunch of day laborers and um, paid those who worked an hour the same as those who worked a full day. What would your reaction be as you're reading this in the newspaper? Likely indignation, right? That's not fair. How could they do that? Jerry Bridges tells a hypothetical story of a freshman English class, and he says, on the one hand, there were a few conscientious and well-disciplined students who had learned good study habits in high school. They consistently did assignments, studied well for tests, and turned in well-prepared term papers on time. At the opposite end of the spectrum were the typical party boys who did just enough to get by. They rarely did assignments, hardly studied for tests, and never turned in a term paper on time. And as is is typical in such a class, the vast majority of students were somewhere in between. At last, final exam day arrived. And as expected, the disciplined students did well, and the party boys all did poorly. After a couple of days, the professor posted the grades outside his office door. And as the students crowded around to see what grade they had received, they were all stunned to see that everyone in the class had received an A. The party boys could hardly believe their good fortunes. And the good students were outraged to realize that those who deserved to fail had received the same top grade as they had. Now, if you were to read that story, what would your response be? That's not right. That professor is completely unfair. How could he? We empathize with those who studied hard, and we empathize with the workers who had worked all day and in verse 10 thought they would receive more. We, like Peter in 1927, wonder what we're going to get. And we ruffle at this parable because we think it's not fair. It seems unfair, doesn't it? But was the landowner actually being unfair? Actually far from it. A denarius is a, is a fair day's wage. 
maybe 60 or $70 in today's money. There wasn't such thing as a minimum wage in these times, but if there was something like it, it would be this, a day's wage. While it wasn't much, most were still in poverty. A denarius was, was enough to provide for the family, was enough to provide for necessary means. In fact, the employer of day laborers in Israel uh, were required by the Torah to pay at the end of every day because this was sustenance living. To get this kind of payment for daily wage was to keep your laborers alive. So here's the deal. The landowner was fair with those hired early in the day. He was being absolutely fair with paying what they had earned. And then became more and more generous with those hired later in the day. Did the one-hour workers or even the three-hour workers deserve a full day's wage of 60 or $70? No. He was paying them with extreme generosity. Bridges says the landowner could have paid them only what they had earned, but he chose to pay them according to their need not according to their work. The landowner is considering those who had been standing, waiting for work all day, thinking about hungry children at home, thinking about their needs, waiting for them at home, which required money, and he gave them more than they had earned. Nevertheless, the full-day laborers had become jealous. They became angry precisely because of this generosity. Why? Verse 10, they thought they would receive more. So here's the most important thing for us to consider, for us and for Peter, as we hear this parable. Even though the landowner is being extremely generous, why do we think that the landowner is being unfair? Because we assume that we are the full day 12-hour workers. We assume that we are the ones who are hired at the beginning of the day. We assume that we have earned more than we think we are owed. This can either be because of the good things that we've done for God, like Peter in 1927, see, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What will we get? James and John Chapter 20, verse 21, or at least their mother thought that they were certainly full day, 12-hour workers, didn't they? We get to sit at your right hand and your left hand, right, Jesus, because of all that we've done for you? But I fear we're no different. I fear that we think because of our faithfulness and church attendance. We think that uh, we're being really good, even though we're, what, only 27 days into this year. We've been really faithful with our Bible reading plan this year, so... Right hand and left hand, right, God? Right? We've been really good about going on the, the Guatemala mission trips each year, every other year if we can. We've worked really hard to abstain from stuff that you see others indulging in. And like Jonah, think, surely, God, you will not be merciful on them. I have been obedient. I have done all that I can to earn this, Surely you would give me more, not like them. So we think that we are these full day, 12 hour workers because of the good things that we've done or because of the bad stuff that we've endured. Listen, we, I know 
many of you, even right now, are enduring extremely difficult things with family, brokenness, difficult relationships, whether in your house or in extended families. Many of you are enduring ongoing and chronic health problems. You've experienced death in your family. Money has been tight. You're, you're making it month to month. So surely, God, of all of the things that I'm enduring for your, sta- for your sake and still being faithful, surely I'm owed more. In his complaining and in his questioning of, questioning of God, Job had shifted his thinking into thinking that his suffering had somehow made him into a full-day, 12-hour worker, and that he was somehow owed more from God because of the things that he's endured and because of the things that he had his, his faithful life before. Job is a case study in thinking that the good things that he's done and the bad things that he's endured somehow makes him uh, deserving of God's generosity. And then when we, like Job, see others blessed with money, blessed with nicer cars or nicer homes than us, with popularity at the office, with good looks or the promotion or accolades or public praise. We see this. We think about the things that we've done for God and suffered for God, and we get angry at God. How could you? You owe me more. I thought I was going to get more than this. And then when we don't get what we expect, we hold God guilty of withholding, of not giving us the things that we need to be happy or that we deserve. We hold God guilty of ultimately not being good. This sense of entitlement. Perhaps I've shared this illustration with the youth several times, and again, this comes from Jerry Bridges. Uh, What if uh, you worked real hard this year to keep every single traffic law? You never once exceeded the speed limit. You never once rolled through a stop sign. You signaled every time you changed lanes. You were meticulous about keeping every traffic law this year. And then on January 1st of 2017, you show up uh, down at the office and you say, I've kept all the laws. I'm here for my reward. I would like, I don't know, $100. Maybe that's even too low. $1,000 this year for keeping all the laws. Albuquerque, pay up. Uh, They would laugh you out of the building, right? If somehow you were able to live a completely obedient, sinless life, would God be obligated to reward us for our keeping the rules? No. Why? Because just as it is your duty as as a citizen of Albuquerque to follow the laws... As sovereign creator and king of the universe, it is merely our duty to obey him. So in good things and in bad things, in good contexts and in bad contexts, we serve and we obey. 
So God says to Job in Job 41, were you there? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Or as the landowner says in this parable, in verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? But here's the deal. Not only is God not obligated to reward us for our faithfulness to him, the problem is, is that we're not faithful to him. What good things do we deserve? Nothing. We don't deserve a reward even if we were obedient, never mind the daily and active rebellion that we lead each minute of the day. So what do we deserve? Death. Hell. Judgment from God, separation from God. And yet, what has God given us? For one thing, soup that tastes good. God's grace. He could have given us perhaps our sustenance pill of the day uh, that we popped in our mouth and now we can stay alive today. But he didn't. He made food that is delicious that we can enjoy because we enjoy God. He gives us, for those of us who live here, a gorgeous mountain to look at every day. I told the youth the first month I got here, I know, I know this is going to happen, everybody, but right now, my first month being here in July of 2012, this mountain, every time I pull out of the parking lot, it's like the most majestic, beautiful thing that that I can imagine, right? It's, it's unbelievable. We can see God's power and his beauty and his creativity, and it's great. But I fear, and I know what's going to happen within a month or two, certainly in a year or two, it's just going to kind of become the thing, right? We see it every day, no big deal. And you know what? It's happened, especially, especially for those of you who have lived here your whole life. We become used to things. God has given us beauty. He's given us friends. He's given us this church. God's grace that he's given us a church, that he's given us leaders to lead. He's given us even this breath and this next beat of the heart. He's given us life, God's grace, and mercy. He's given us his word. He's given us revelation and knowledge of him, which he did not have to, but he did. He's given us himself and his son, He's adopted us as sons and daughters. This is why James can say in James 1, every good and perfect gift is from above. Everything that you experience, a good church, good soup, a beautiful mountain, the next breath you take comes from the Father above and is a gift that you do not deserve. So Jesus here is sneaking past our presumption that we are all these 12-hour, full-day, working so hard workers, that this is what we are owed and what we deserve. But Jesus is sneaking past this presumption to say that you are not owed anything. Nothing. So it's one thing for us to just understand those theological concepts of holiness, of sin, of grace, but it's quite another for this kind of understanding of the gospel to begin to transform our entire lives. So let's think through this of now not just understanding this parable, but now letting it seep into the crevices of our thinking and living this parable. This kind of 
understanding that I actually am a end-of-the-day, one-hour worker should give me the kind of humility that the Roman centurion exhibits for us in Matthew 8, where he says to Jesus, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. He knows. He knows that he's an 11th hour worker. He is owed nothing. He doesn't deserve anything. And I'm sure if we were to see the narrative of that centurion's life played out past that scene, as I hope that we'll find out as we meet our brother in eternity, I'm confident that we, should, that we would see this understanding of the gospel actually began to change the way he thought about his job, the way he commanded his men, the way he cared for his wife and his family if he had one, back in Italy perhaps the way he thought about sexual fulfillment and immorality, being away from his family, perhaps. The way he thought about the gods and religious experience. As a religious outsider, outside of the people of God, this kind of encounter with the Lord Jesus, an encounter of grace and mercy and power, should change the way that he then began to forgive others, to show grace to others. And yet so were we, outside of the people of God, an enemy, deserving of nothing, not worthy to come under God's roof or to be in his presence. Just as Trent read in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. But what follows the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are the two sweetest words in the Bible. You know this? the two sweetest and amazing words in all of Scripture to us, but God. Considering all of these things, that we were outside of his uh, friendship, that we lived daily and active, rebellious lives against him, but God. For those of us who are in Christ, he has brought us near. He has given not because we deserve, but because of our great need. Anything and everything we have is because of the overwhelming generosity of the one who owns the land. We are owed nothing more. So this really isn't the parable of the laborers and the vineyard, perhaps as your ESV or NIV subtitle titles it. In that title, we are meant to believe that the focus is actually on the workers, isn't it? The laborers that happen to be working in the vineyard. Maybe how they responded to to the landowner. I hope that we see that that's probably a, a bit of a missed title, isn't it? This is actually the parable of the generous landowner. The one who gave generously as the day went and and got later in the day. The one who gave according to need, not based on merit. The landowner who didn't owe the one-hour workers and yet gave them an overwhelming generosity. So like the disciples, we thought and are continually thinking that we are owed. So Jesus could have said to Peter and to me, hey, Peter, hey, Nathan, you aren't owed anything. You should just be humble and thankful for God's grace in your life. And then Peter and I likely would have said, okay, Jesus, yeah, I got it. 
I'll just really work on trying to be more thankful and then not really know what to do with that, right? But when Peter and I can place ourselves in the story and see the unbelievable and amazing grace that the landowner shows, we can urge ourselves, preach to ourselves, the one hour late in the day workers who aren't owed anything to respond in humility, to respond in thankfulness. And we can see that we have not worked as a full day, 12 hour worker. So when we realize that this parable is about amazing, overwhelming grace and generosity that we are not owed, we can come in humility. We don't shake our fists to the heavens when things don't go the way we think that they should. We can look around us and see how God is generously giving and blessing us by just giving us another heartbeat, much less this church, much much less salvation. But just as we must look at what precedes the parable, we must also look at what follows it. Context matters, remember Matthew then gives us another interpretive key to understanding this parable as he goes on in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So how is it that the landowner, God the Father, can give generously to us, to us, the end of the day, undeserving, one-hour workers? How can he? Because Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Because Jesus allows himself to be handed over to the chief priests. Because Jesus is condemned to death. Because he's delivered over to the Romans who will flog and crucify him but also because he was raised victoriously over sin and death on the third day. This is how the landowner, God the Father, can give generously. Jesus was the only full-day, 12-hour worker in the story who worked perfectly all day long. If anything was owed to him, it was him. And yet he willingly went to the cross so that we, the ones who have not earned anything, might experience the generosity of the Father. This is the gospel that saves. The Father can save us, can bring us near, can adopt us because of what is coming at the end of the road where Jesus is now walking, the cross at the top of the hill. So the gospel is for those who have not yet believed. If that's the case for you, if you have not believed in this, if you're not trusting in this gospel, that there is one who has worked on your behalf so that the Father can then generously give, if that's the case, if you haven't believed in this, would you believe that tonight? Would you receive his grace and mercy I urge you, believe in Jesus' life and death for you and be saved tonight. But the gospel is 
not only for those who have not yet believed it. The gospel is for all of us. The gospel is for those of us who have believed as well. We are continually tempted to think that we are owed this, aren't we? That of course God would save me. No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. It's only because of Jesus' broken body and shed blood that he would. And he does. So we need this. What we are about to do, we need this. We need to remind ourselves often, we need to remind ourselves regularly that we are not owed this. That it is only grace, only the generosity of the landowner that he would even give to us, that he would save us, that he would show us grace. So we need this regularly to preach to ourselves. We're not owned anything, but, and yet the Father is so gracious. He is so generous to us. 